You're listening to The Whole Church Podcast. Our efforts to educate and unite the church are made possible thanks to our sponsors on Patreon. Please consider joining them for $3 a month at patreon.com forward slash the whole church podcast, where you'll get extra bonus content like our pet peeves segment, where we ask our guests about their pets and their peeves with the church. John 13 verses 31 through 35 in the Christian Standard Bible read, When he had left, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you. Where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This famous passage of scripture is from the story of the Last Supper. After Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he prophesies Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial of him during his upcoming, upcoming crucifixion. Between those two prophecies, right after saying one will betray him and before Peter will deny him, Jesus tells the disciples this is how they should be known, by their love. Uh, Steve Copeland, why do you think Jesus included this commandment about love in context of the upcoming betrayals by his followers? Yeah, it's a great question. Actually, we have other details about the Last Supper, and especially Matthew and Luke. And Jesus actually explains why he's telling them beforehand what's going to happen. So in John 13, 18 to 19, he speaks about the fulfilled prophecy regarding Judas. Um, and then he tells them that He's saying this so that they will believe that he is the one the prophet said will be betrayed. And then in Matthew 26, 31, 32, presumably after Judas has already left, Jesus says that all of them will fall away and quotes the prophecy about the shepherd being struck and the sheep scattered. Now, what's interesting for me is that Jesus uses the word betray concerning Judas but he states it, and he states it would be better that Judas had never been born. But then he uses this term fall away concerning the other disciples, quite distinctive words. And when he speaks about their falling away, he immediately offers a comforting statement. Now, he does this both times. So immediately after telling Peter he's going to disown him, Jesus then begins this, let not your hearts be troubled and that he's going to prepare a place for us. So for me, the context of the Last Supper is about Jesus explaining the new covenant in his blood and his commandment to love one another is the underlying foundation of the fruit of that covenant. Now, for the next three chapters in John, Jesus goes on to explain the new covenant. He talks about sending the Holy Spirit and repeatedly speaks of love. For example, if you love me, you will obey what I command, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. But for me, one of the key verses here is John 14, 17. Here Jesus tells the disciples that they know the Holy Spirit because he is with them and will be in them. In essence, Jesus is saying, right now you are weak men, and all of you will fall away. But when the Holy Spirit is within you, you will be filled with my power and love and prove it by your love for one another. That's how I would understand what Jesus is saying in this text. All right. Good answer.
What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Whole Church Podcast. Today, we are going to talk with Steve Copeland, renowned theologian, uh, co-founder of the Ukraine uh, Evangelical Seminary. I almost yeah. said ecclesiastical. That's not that's not what that is. And uh, we're going to talk about his testimony, his story, what he's doing. And uh, Josh, unfortunately, is not with us today. Uh, he has bad eyes. He had to go get them worked on. Uh, you know how it is. I am TJ Blackwell here with Steve Copeland. How are you doing today? How am I doing? I'm doing okay. Um, as I mentioned to you uh, before the podcast, uh, TJ, we're, we're under an air raid siren at the moment in Kiev. So um, appreciate people's prayers for our safety. Yeah. Uh, of course, you know, our community has been praying for the ongoing conflict in Ukraine and you know, a bit of a added tension to this episode, uh, uh, you know, compared to our, our normal episodes. Sure. But uh, in case you missed it, he is currently in Ukraine and has been in Ukraine since the early 2000s. 2003, yeah, for the last 20 years. Yeah, I was uh, I was four years old, personally. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, that's kind of here nor there. Uh if you're listening, consider supporting us on Patreon. Check out the Onizal Ministries podcast network. Uh, the link is below in the show notes. Uh, consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts to the paid channel. You get all the extra content from Patreon from all of the Onizal Ministries podcast shows. And, you know, that includes all the whole church news. You get free merch every few months on Patreon. Check us out. We'd really appreciate it. Now, if you are new to the show and uh, is Steve all right or... Mr. Copeland, or uh, just Steve is uh, is what I go by, and my last name Copeland has no e. I, I, I like really? to mention that because sometimes people associate me with a famous or infamous prosperity teacher in America. Yeah, and I think a Champions League general manager. I think Steve Copeland. Uh, whatever, but that yeah, is interesting. I've never seen that before. So, Joshua's favorite form of unity is silliness. He believes that it's impossible to be in disunity if you're being silly. So we start every episode with a silly question. Now, Steve, if you had to pick any Bible character other than God, you know, Jesus, for your roommate, who would you choose? And I'll go first to give you time to think about this question. Uh, but I'm my ideal biblical roommate is going to be Job personally, because, you know, no matter how much of a mess I make, what I leave uh, how you know how high the rent gets? Job's going to stick around, I think. For me, it's going to be either the Apostle John or Paul. Um, my first preference would be John because of his um, incredible emphasis on the love of Christ throughout all of his writings, and I would just love to sit and talk to this guy about what it was like to walk with Jesus. Oh yeah, I like that answer. Uh, yeah, maybe we'll find out. too, but I think he'd um, he'd be schooling me in my theology. Oh yeah, I could imagine. Yeah. You know, trying to eat dinner, and Paul's like, "Well, I, you know, actually." Yeah, I don't know that he was a very good cook either. I doubt it. I really doubt it. But uh, for the real show, uh, one way we found it is really helpful for engendering unity in the church is to hear one another's testimonies. Uh, would you mind sharing with our listeners your story of how you came to the faith and got involved with writing and missions and everything you're into now? 
Yeah, well, let me start a little earlier, and I'll I'll try to be brief. But <clears throat> I'm I'm a New Zealander by birth. Uh, I'm one of eight children, so I grew up in a more of a tribe than a family. Uh, my father was a both a farmer and a Baptist pastor, and uh, he had a huge library full of books on theology and philosophy. Now, I lived on a very big farm, about three and a half thousand acres, and it was very isolated. And I was not very interested in television, so I spent most of my free time, which was not a lot, reading Nietzsche, Plato, Calvin, and others, because my greatest passion from as young as I can remember was to understand what is truth. I joined a rock band and started secretly learning karate at age 13. Uh, but at 15, a close friend was killed in a car accident. And this started making me concerned about where I was going if I died. So one night I went to an evangelical service and um, they made an altar call and I went forward uh, where, they, where the pastor got me to follow him in a prayer to ask Jesus into my heart. And um, he told me that I was born again and asked me, where is Jesus now? And, and, and honestly, I said, look, I have no idea. And he said, well, what did you just ask? And, <laughs> and then he told me, well, because you asked him into your heart, he's, he's obviously there. So I went home and I, I left the band. I quit the band. And I stopped smoking. And, and I tried to understand this old King James Bible that my father gave me. But after three months, I just gave up because I had absolutely no power to live a changed life. And I knew that nothing existential had happened to me. And, and I thought, maybe it's all just a fraud. <clears throat> and at the time, unfortunately, perhaps, I was reading Arthur Pink's Sovereignty of God. This is a, hmm. a hyper-Calvinist book. And after reading it, I was convinced that God was simply an arbitrary tyrant who predetermined certain people to hell before they'd even been born or done anything in their life. Now, that view led me into the occult and eventually into New Age Satanism for the next 10 years. And I'm, I'm not going to get into all of that. But during those years, I would sometimes secretly pray, God, if you are really there and I'm on the wrong path, lead me to the truth. But I never told anybody that I ever prayed that prayer. Now, after a failed marriage and two failed attempts at suicide, the Lord led me to a place of humility. And on the 19th of July, 1982, I met Jesus Christ in my bedroom, alone and on my knees. It was an incredibly powerful experience. He revealed my arrogant heart to me. He showed me my sin and I surrendered my life to him unconditionally. He filled me with the Holy Spirit and he delivered me of demonic possession and I fell in love with him. I finally found the truth because truth is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now at that time, the Lord put on my heart that one day I would serve him in what was then Russia because Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. But firstly, I should raise my children and prepare for that time. So I worked as a registered master builder. I was also for 10 years a professional photographer. But in my spare time, I studied Greek and theology, um, mostly by correspondence with the New Zealand Bible College, and was very involved with evangelism with my local church. I used to also um, hold what I called non-Christian Bible studies in my home, and I wrote a, uh, a little book called Time for Truth uh, for that purpose. 
Now, after my children were married, I went to university and studied theology full-time, also studied church history and other topics. And later, I was invited to come to Ukraine to help establish the Evangelical Seminary. And therefore, so I've been here for the past 20 years, uh, doing various ministries and helping in churches and working as a self-supported missionary. That's basically it. Wow. What an amazing testimony. What a full life. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's that's the short version, TJ. Yeah, but anyway, you know, for me, I fell in love with Christ 40 years ago, and he is my greatest passion. And everything I write, everything I do is to help people to to know him and to be in love with him and to live for him. That's that's the bottom line for me. Yeah. I, you got there eventually. That's what matters. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you mentioned it a little to me earlier before we started, but so what makes your current church unique? Uh, <clears throat> uh, that's a, it's an interesting question. Um, I've been working with other pastors in, in various churches in Ukraine. One of them, it was one of the biggest evangelical churches in Kiev. Um, and, and look, a great church, great pastor. But, and, and we were mostly involved with, um, with youth work, people from 13 uh, to, to 17, and then another group, 18 to 30-year-olds. And one of, the, one of the biggest issues for us was that perhaps 90% of people that are in churches today are little more than spectators. Now, this church had, they had midweek Bible studies for people if they wanted to go. But for the most part, in churches around the world, people sit and listen to the Christian professionals on the stage and the best musicians, etc. And they don't really have the opportunity or take their obligation and responsibility to find their gifts and to use them. So we decided to establish house churches and see if, um, you know, if we could bring it into a more um, personal, intimate atmosphere. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the coronavirus came along and, and we were unable to continue doing that. And then when the war, uh, the, the full-scale invasion of the war, the war actually started in 2014, but the full-scale invasion broke out last February, uh, many people involved in their home churches had to take their children and leave the country. Their, many of them, their husbands stayed here, of course. So now we are mostly just meeting online. We have people from six or seven different countries that join with us, um, and we, we basically work from there. Yeah, that's, it's really amazing that you know, some people will go through so much to be able to have their church life, and you know, others you know, in this country, well, if they have a flat tire, they're not going to church. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. No, but I, I would like to mention briefly that, uh, like the, the New Zealand, Australia, like Western Europe version of evangelicalism is not like the evangelicalism that, uh, most of our listeners will be familiar with. It's very different. We might do an episode on it one day, but it's, it's culturally, it's not quite the same. I don't think we have time to get into all the differences, but it's not like the Billy Graham, you know, deep South type evangelicals that we're used to. But now that I just wanted to mention that briefly, 
uh, before we get on to our speed round segment. Uh, now, this is usually the hardest part for our pastors, teachers, uh, things like that. But uh, we like to get our audience to get to know you a little better. And we'd, I'm just going to ask you a series of questions. And the rules are you have to answer in one sentence. And it can be as complex of a sentence as you want, but it has to be one. And I'm not allowed to ask you any follow-up questions. Okay. Do you think you're up for it? I'll give it a crack. All right. So, who or what is God? <laughs> hey. God is the supreme sovereign creator, one being and three persons, the source and essence of holiness, love, mercy, and faithfulness, and revealed perfectly in the life of Jesus Christ. All right. What is salvation? Well, you ask me what is salvation, not how we become saved. So my answer is going to be that I believe Jesus said it best in John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What does it mean to be truly evangelical? To be truly evangelical is to recognize that God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2, and have the same passion as the Lord to help lost souls come to know Him. All right. What authority does Scripture have? Well, all Scripture is God-breathed, and therefore it has absolute authority in all things regarding doctrine and Christian practice. What authority does tradition have? Yeah, this is a tricky question. <laughs> If by tradition <clears throat> we mean the correct interpretation of Scripture which has been handed down to us, then it has biblical authority. But if a tradition contradicts Scripture, it should be challenged and rejected. All right, good answer. Good answer. Uh, what are your views on free will and predestination? <laughs> yeah. Predestination is always tied to God's foreknowledge. And any man who thinks he can understand time from God's perspective has simply deceived himself. Therefore, for me, predestination is God's business and free will is our business, the God-given ability to either choose obedience or disobedience. All right. We talk about God and time quite a few times, actually. Very interesting subject. But what are your views on hell? Yeah, another difficult question. Um, I believe that those who willfully reject the gospel are suffering in Hades, a place Jesus mentioned, which is outside of time. Now, when Christ returns, the body of these people will be resurrected. Hades will be destroyed, and these people will be cast, body and soul, into Gehenna, the place of destruction, where they will experience the second death. What do you love about the Bible? What do I love about the Bible? Uh, I love that the Bible is, as it states, living and active. It's not dead words on a page. And that the same Holy Spirit who lives in me speaks, leads, interprets, nourishes my soul through the scripture as he leads me through my life. All right. Uh, what version of the Bible do you prefer to read? Um, when I'm reading the Old Testament, I actually... Well, in English, I normally just use the NIV. I have other versions. Um, but when I'm doing study, I use the Septuagint, a Greek version of the Old Testament. It's the only one the apostles ever quote from. Um, and of course, I uh, 
use Greek a lot in my own personal studies, but I don't overuse Greek when I'm teaching. Right. Important, important lesson to learn. We don't all know Greek. It gets confusing. Yeah. Uh, how many of the sacraments do you or your church organization hold to, and which ones are there? Uh, we practice believers' baptism and communion. Uh, we conduct marriages, but only if both parties are baptized believers. Uh, that's at least for me personally. And if requested, uh, we will also anoint and pray for the sick. All right. Well, you did a fantastic job on the speed round. Uh, everybody at home can give a round of applause. But you are also an author. You've written quite a few books. Uh, 14, I think, is the number. Uh, and I think so. You've written Something children's like books. Yeah. You know, you lose track, right? Sorry? You lose track after a few, you know? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, you can do. So you've written children's books, uh, ministerial works, uh, and you've written the book on theology that we're going to focus on today. Uh, but we wanted to ask you about a few of the books that, you know, kind of stuck out to us. Okay. So what can you tell us about your children's books and what inspired you to write them? Well, when I was a young Christian, uh, the New Zealand government had a program called Bible in Schools. And um, they would give out this government material, which, you know, had one week you're talking about Mother Teresa and then Abraham, and then Jesus, and then back to Moses. And, and, and they were, frankly, they were boring, and it was really difficult to control children or trying to get them really interested. So I decided to write my first children's book called Just Because, The Story of Salvation for Children, um, in small 20-minute chapters, which I could read to the kids when I was in the schools. And there were like 30 children in each class. And I... I frame the context of the book in the fact that the prophecy in Genesis 3 says that the woman would bear a child, the seed of the woman would bear a child, and she would crush the serpent's head. So the whole story throughout, and it takes children right from Genesis to uh, almost to Revelation, certainly into the Gospels, um, where Satan is looking for this kid. Who's this kid that's going to crush his head? But it teaches children the whole story of salvation and where everybody fits into that story. Um, so when I would go to school, uh, to the school in the morning, the kids would get this government material. They'd try to finish it in five minutes and they'd all be sitting up, get, just, just couldn't wait to hear the next chapter of the story. Um, so that's why I wrote the first book, you know, the, the King's Donkeys. Um, this is a book with which, tells the story of Jesus' life as narrated uh, by the donkey who carried him to Bethlehem uh, in his mother's womb and then took him to Egypt. So it was just a cool story from that perspective. Yeah. There's another, another little book called Slug, The Reluctant uh, Butterfly, and it's about a, a caterpillar who's afraid to lose his life as a caterpillar in order to be transformed into a butterfly. And it's a it's a simple way of explaining to children what it means to be born again. You know, TJ, I've always believed that if, as a theologian or teacher, you can't inspire and explain fundamental theology to children, then you really shouldn't call yourself a teacher at all. 
we must be able to explain the gospel to children in a way that just makes them want to be in a relationship with God from wherever they're at. Yeah, I actually, I had a, I had a friend telling me about the King's Donkeys the other day. I didn't know that was you. That's awesome. Ah, well, it's actually got 20 uh, original paintings that a, a Ukrainian lady did for the book, which is really cool. Uh, yeah, it's one of the only books I have which actually has colored photographs in it, which makes it a little bit more expensive as a printed book. But, uh, yeah, children really love the story. Yeah, no, that's super cool. Uh, you've, you've also written a book about the different views on, on hell. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, well, firstly... The book's called Hell and Immortality, and, and that's really important because the word immortality literally means that which cannot be destroyed. Now, this idea came from the Greek philosopher Plato, who taught that the soul is pre-existent, and it's a small part of the logos. That's basically the word or God. And therefore, the soul can never be destroyed. Now, this, But this is not a biblical idea, and if we translate verses on hell with the preconceived notion that the soul can never be destroyed, then we end up with a tradition which contradicts Scripture and the character of God. Now, Paul tells us in Timothy that God alone is immortal, and he also speaks in Romans 2 of those who seek immortality. You don't need to seek something you already have, obviously. But more importantly, Jesus warned us in Matthew 10, 28, to be afraid of he who can destroy both body and soul, in Gehenna. And he's obviously talking about the two being together. So for a start, I want to say that immortality is a gift of God. It is not something which is naturally given to people. Now, there's the other most important thing is that there are several different words translated as hell in Scripture, which often have corresponding words in both the Old and New Testament. Sheol in the Old is Hades in the New, for example. But we also speak of Gehenna, which is the same as the lake of fire. And then there's the abyss. This is the place where the demons pleaded with Jesus not to let them go to. And then we have Tartarus, a place which Peter uses, the only one time it's used in Scripture, which is a place of imprisonment of fallen angels. So they're all speaking of quite different places. So when Jesus speaks of Hades, it's about suffering. But whenever he spoke of Gehenna, or the lake of fire, the word he used for destroy is the Greek apolumi, and this word means to utterly destroy. So I wanted to write a book which examines all of the verses about hell and immortality and see if there's a constant and non-contradictory teaching throughout Scripture. And I believe that there is. All right. Yeah, we, uh, we actually we have a similar series on our show. We'll you know, dissect major chapters of the Bible and talk about everybody's different viewpoints on them. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it makes for really interesting content in most cases. Yeah. Well, a man called Edward Fudge wrote a book called Two Views of Hell, where uh, he debates with a, with, a, with a guy Peterson on the two extreme views. But unfortunately, they don't bring into account many of the other verses from Shehol and Hades and show how the, the whole doctrine of hell actually develops in the Old Testament, and we get passages in the, in, the, in the Proverbs and others that speak of both death and then destruction, as if they're, and, and these two things continue into the New Testament. But um, it, look, it's, it's just a small book, but it does explore all of that, and, and I give my own conclusions on, on that.
Yeah. So we'll check that out and uh, we'll include links in the show notes for these books so that okay. our audience can kind of check them out. Uh, you have a commentary series called Living in Christ. And uh, is there a reason why you went with the name did for the for your commentary series? Um, they're actually called Bible study slash commentaries. Um, look, most Christians have never read a commentary uh, because many commentaries are, are very academic. They're written specifically to pastors and theological uh, students or people that have been trained in theology. And as such, they often lack any real practical application and can seem rather spiritless. Uh, look, they're great for theology students and pastors, but they're really uninspiring for most. So I wanted to write commentaries which take people through the epistles as week-by-week Bible studies, which not only explain the text, but give practical and encouraging advice, advice for living in Christ. This is why I chose that word for the series. So I wanted people to be able to sit together in a Bible study and all and uh, be involved but also to give pastors who work through the epistles outlines for weekly sermons. So basically, that was the reason that the commentaries are the way that they are. Right. That's great. Uh, speaking of practicality, something you're a huge fan of, you wrote the book where we're going to talk about, focus on today, called uh, An Introduction to Practical Systematic Theology. So what inspired you to write this book and what is it all about? Uh, okay. Well, I was asked to prepare a theology textbook for training Ukrainian leaders, uh, as there are basically none in the Ukrainian language here, and uh, especially recently because of the war, uh, Putin has made an issue about the Russian language itself, which has made the, the issue even more acute. But in answer to your question, uh, what's it all about? Um, well, it's called practical, uh, practical systematic theology, and, uh, and I think you're wanting to know what is the difference and, and, and is there a combination of two separate fields of study here. Uh, to answer that question, I'd like to read you a couple of paragraphs from the preface of the book, which I think explains it really well. Okay, so I quote, As a lecturer in systematic theology, church history, and apologetics, I'm well aware that theology students need to understand the historical development of theology and the implications of various views. But as a pastor, house church leader, and trainer of leaders, I recognize that pastors, evangelists, and teachers seek practical ways to apply theology in order to fulfill their roles in bringing people to Christ and helping them to be transformed into his likeness. So because of that, I've tried to maintain a balance of both academic formal and practical informal styles within the book in the hope of not only informing readers of the development and fruits of theological beliefs throughout church history, but also to inspire leaders to a deeper love for Christ, passion for scripture, and a motivation to use their gifts to inspire others. And then I conclude with this. If our theology does not lead us to desire to live our lives in the shadow of the cross, if it is not Christ-centered, if it does not inspire us to fulfill the greatest commandment in love, worship, and adoration of the triune God and love towards our neighbors, then it serves no eternal purpose and is no more than an intellectual exercise. So that's where I stand. 
I, I also wanted a book that Christians can read and understand. Just your, your, your everyday Christian who would like to know more about theology. A, a book not full of strange academic language, uh, but so there's, so there's a great deal of practical material. There's uh, sections on how to do Bible study methodology. There's a chapter on world religions and on theological extremes. Uh, there's a great deal about the early life of Jesus, etc. So there's a, a huge amount of practical theology as well as the whole academic textbook, which students need to have the discipline in order to get a bachelor's degree. Right. Yeah, that, I feel like that's a severely underserved market is like the lay person who is interested in theology but yeah, doesn't want to go to college and get yes. a, you know, a four-year education to understand what the books are about. Yes, and, and this is, um, you know, and we have we have guys, many, many people in Ukraine who live in little villages who will never have the opportunity to go to a seminary. It doesn't mean that they're uneducated or stupid people. They're not. Ukrainians are very intelligent people. But I want I want a book that can sit on a pastor's desk when he's preparing his sermons, preparing his Bible study, not just something he did to earn a degree. And, and you know, any leader or any person, per, person interested in theology will easily understand uh, understand my book. Right. So you focus on the early church yeah. in uh, practical systematic theology. Yeah. Uh, so why the early church instead of any of the since-founded traditions? Well, of course, all throughout the book, um, every view of the the fund, uh, of, of various theologians all through history is uh, is spoken about and critiqued, but they're all critiqued against the theology of the earliest. Now, I say earliest church theologians rather than just early church. Now, look, few people have heard of the great Christian leader Polycarp a man who was martyred for his faith in, in his 80s. Now, this man knew the Apostle John personally, and he possibly also knew Paul. So if anyone knew how the apostles understood what the Holy Spirit had inspired them to write, it was those who spoke to the apostles themselves. Now, the issue is not that people don't have Bibles. The issue is how we interpret the Scriptures and whether or not our interpretation contradicts other passages of Scripture. Now, Polycarp passed down what he learned to men like Irenaeus. And when we read Irenaeus, Justin, Ignatius, Hippolytus, and others, you notice that in their paragraphs are almost identical. That they had the same teacher. And these were the very first Christian theologians. And, and these men can encompass all of Scripture without contradiction. So all of that changed when the church joined the Roman Empire around the year 314. And the very influential theologian Augustine of Hippo introduced his doctrine that we inherit the sin and the guilt of Adam, and therefore we're all under the wrath of God. Now, prior to that date, theologians taught that we are born with a what they call a corrupted nature, meaning a nature of death and mortality. In other words, we inherited death as a consequence of Adam's sin, not the sin itself. And when you read Romans 5, one of the, the passages of Scripture that Augustine got wrong because he, he didn't know Greek, he never used Greek, he used an old Latin version of the Bible, Paul is giving a contrast between death and life. He's never, ever giving a theological doctrine on inherited sin guilt. 
But the most serious issue is not to talk about whether or not we were born sinners, etc., because we all end up sinning anyway. We all sin and have fallen short of the glory of God. The most serious issue is in trying to decide how did Jesus escape this inherited sin and creating a doctor's Christ. And, and the results of Augustine's traditions are the Immaculate Conception, Mary is the Queen of Heaven, uh, baptizing children uh, to save them from original sin, and it goes on and on. So a doctrine needs to be validated, not only on whether it is not contradicted anywhere in Scripture, but on the fruit that it produces. I think this is vitally important. So fundamentally, Augustine's doctrine ends up with a Christ who is not like us, and therefore he cannot be a fit substitute for us. Now, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, in fact, Hebrews 2, 14, you can go back to the previous verses, thoroughly refutes this tradition. It states that Jesus had to be, quote, made like his brothers in every way in order to make atonement for sin. Now, this is the most important reason why I'm calling theologians in my book to go back and look at what the earliest church fathers taught and see that there is no contradiction in their teachings at all. That's, that's the fundamental reason. All right. That's a great reason. So one thing that we, the whole church podcast, have occasionally been accused of uh, as a Christian unity podcast is that mm -hmm. we're trying to get everyone in the church to believe our way or in the same way, uh, which is why we're trying to make it a point that we are about unity and not uniformity. Uh, so how do you feel about that kind of distinction? And is it important to you? Yeah, it's a great question, TJ. Look, we can compromise about cultural forms of worship, about what we wear, what we sing, and such things. But when the foundations of what we believe are incompatible, there's no witness of the Spirit between us, and therefore no unity. So look, I, I believe that unity must be grounded in biblical truth. And Scripture warns us about false teachings and about people falling away from sound doctrine, especially in these last days. So that we need to exercise wisdom and we need to examine every form of teaching, not only against Scripture, but also by the fruit it produces. We can't simply have, there can be no real unity unless it's grounded in the truth of what we believe. Right. We, we, call, we call it our tier system, uh, but every issue can be sorted into one of three tiers. And our first tier is the only tier that will you know, make us not brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's, you know, believing in God and, you know, Jesus is man and God and things like that. Mm -hmm. Everything else we can disagree about and we can still have Christian unity. You know, sure. Biblical truths. Biblical truths are the thing that make us in, join. In general people. terms, I can agree with that. Um, but I can tell you, if you're, if you if you ever get into conversations uh, with people who, for example, are on uh, who are very reformed, especially for example, hyper reformed Calvinist theologians, and on the other side, Armenians, you'll find that there, in in the, in a vast majority of cases, there is just so much division and disunity 
And the reason is because the foundation of their theology, the, the very foundations are based on very different emphasis. Mm-hmm. So, as I say, you know, we have to use wisdom, but of course, Christ prayed that we would be united, and this is very important. Yeah, that is one of our biggest challenges is reconciling groups that really just hate each other. Yeah, sure. But so can the, the practices of the early church really work in our modern world? Look, the early church changed the world. The question is why? You know, they met in each other's homes until the fourth century. Uh, and as I said earlier, perhaps 90% of people in churches today are mere spectators. And they have very little opportunity to contribute, to share their testimonies, to offer encouraging words, uh, or to exercise their spiritual gifts. Now, Paul tells us that every person has been given gifts for the mutual edification of the body of Christ. And there are no exceptions to that. So as leaders, we must ensure that our services and all of our meetings can give every every Christian the opportunity to use their gifts as they are obliged to do so. So Christians grow in maturity through fulfilling those works that God prepared for them to do. And in this regard, we have a great deal to learn from the early church. If you want a classic example of this in modern life, in modern day, the underground church in China. This is an excellent example of that form of early church uh, practice happening. And it's happening for similar reasons, because, of course, they are persecuted there. Yeah. Yeah, I actually, I have a few friends who are involved in the underground church in China, mm. and it's no, but, dangerous. I, I'm not suggesting that everybody shut down their big churches and go in, and go into homes, okay? But I'm saying that we need to have a combination of these things. It's wonderful for the whole church to meet together, hundreds of you together, and, and worship together. This is a wonderful celebratory time that the church should have. But we also... Uh, But for most people, uh, going to a weekly Bible study or something is not a compulsory thing for them, which is something you voluntarily do if you happen to have the time or you're interested. I think we need to change our emphasis, and we need to also get people to understand that God God has given them gifts, and he expects them to use them. Um, Right. The church needs those gifts. Yeah, I I feel... I've been blessed to be a part of a denomination that really does put an emphasis on using your gift to help the church. Uh, A lot of people just go sit down on Sunday for an hour or two. If you know, if they're crazy about it and then go home and don't think about it again until the next Sunday. Well, you know, in in our, in our home churches, we've seen people who would never have said anything in any service, any time, who have just like a, a flower bud that have just opened up and blossomed. And now they're sharing with people in their everyday life about Christ. They've just, they've grown in discipleship incredibly because of um, not just having the opportunity, but encouraged to be a part of, of, of a service. And uh, yeah, so this is what I think we can learn so much from the early church. And yeah. Oh yeah. So what are the biggest challenges and the biggest advantages of practical theology today? The biggest advantages and challenges of practical theology. Yeah. It's like a uh, seminary. I think it's just what we just said. <laughs> practical theology is just theology in action. It's, it's taking, um, well, firstly, the word theology just means God talk. It's about talking about God. So right. it's, it's about 
what I just said, it's about, you know, in in a house church situation or in a in a in an open Bible study situation, um, you don't want a situation in that where the pastor prepares it all and people just basically listen to a Bible study sermon. Practical theology is about people, and this is why I made those little Bible study commentaries. People, everybody has a copy of it, um, and they look at it during the week, and they make their own notes, and they have, the Lord speaks to them about something, and then they share it. So they're they're exercising their the- theology, you know, because theology is just talking about God, um, and and it should be something that's absolutely natural for us. Unfortunately, yeah, a lot of people. Um, if you if you sat down and asked them, could you give me the story of salvation? Uh, could you give me a basic argument against macroevolution? You know, Peter said, uh, and, and I think Second Peter chapter three, that we must always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. But very few Christians are actually prepared for that. Now, he didn't say you must also all be prepared to go out and stand on the street corner and preach. He said you you must be able to. Um, give people an answer when they ask you. So I, I, you know, I wrote this book, Time for Truth, and many, many Christians love it because it's given them basic apologetics. They don't have to feel embarrassed about what they believe, and they can also, you know, or they have they have evidence for the resurrection. They understand macroevolution, and they have lots of ammunition. But more than that, they can actually see the whole story of God's working with people throughout human history. And I think this is incredibly important. This is practical theology in action. And, and, and all Christians must be able to do must be able to do the fundamentals of that. Yeah. So I have one more question for you before we get to start wrapping up, which is a process in itself. But uh, is there a question that you've always hoped to get asked during an interview that no one's asked yet? No. <laughs> All right. What about uh, what? What is the band that you were in? What was the name? Oh, I was in a many, many bands, TJ. Um, uh, the main band I was in was called Rastus, and uh, it was a heavy rock band. So, um, you know, as a young teenager, like my father had no idea what we would, what kind of bands we were playing in. So, um, on Sunday morning, oh, I'm a bass player and a and a drummer. So on Sunday morning, I'd be sitting in church playing these really primitive scripture and song things like Honey in the Rock. And on Saturday night, I was playing Black Sabbath, uh, Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin. It was just a total contradiction. Right. Yeah, no, we've all been there. At least everybody here has. Yeah. Man, playing playing the bass in a church is just boring. Yeah, well... Look, I, I don't get me wrong. I absolutely love playing in a worship team. I've done it an awful lot over the last twenty years. Um, so uh, yeah, I love playing bass and drums with people that love to worship the Lord. It's one of my favourite things. Um, absolutely, and, and we, you know, we we ran uh, student camps with one hundred and fifty young people, and we have some wonderful worship times. So oh yeah. yeah, the worship is what makes it worth it. Yeah. The baselines may be dull, but they're very fulfilling. Mm-hmm. So, if you could give one tangible action, uh, one practical thing that our listeners can go do right now to maintain the unity of the church, what would it be? 
Well, first and foremost, I would say, make your greatest desire to be more in love with Christ every day. Because love is what motivated creation. Loving God is the greatest commandment. And everything else flows from that. So everything I write, and everything that I say is this one goal, that people might love Christ more. And might live in the shadow of the cross and honor him with their lives. And also get involved, find your place in the body of Christ and serve others. Be a servant, but this is the, this is the greatest joy that you will have. And it's, it's service in love is what both defines and unites us. This is for me, love and servant and servanthood is, uh, is the action, are the actions which maintain the universe, the unity of the church and grow us as, as in love for Christ. All right. Yeah, I love that. So uh, before we get into the outro, uh, we like to ask everyone to, usually there's at least three of us, we like to ask everyone to share a moment that they saw God in recently, whether it is a blessing, a challenge, a moment of worship. Uh, I will go first to give you plenty of time to think. Okay. But uh, I just recently uh, attended the whole church podcast convention in Chapel Hill. Believe it or not, I was there. And uh, I had a great time. It was so cool getting being able to hang out with the people that we've been working with together, being able to put up some live episodes and getting to fellowship with you know our fellow podcast hosts on our other shows on the Honest Out Ministries podcast network. And I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to do that these days. And it's, it's just, it's really nice. It's just, it, it's such a humbling experience. So Steve, do you have a, a God moment for us this week? Look, I don't know where to start, to be honest. Um, we have, we have an online prayer meeting every Friday, um, which lasts for a couple of hours. And, since the beginning of the war, one of the guys who is there every week uh, keeps a record. Like he writes down all of our prayer requests, and we've had a huge amount of prayer requests over the last year because it's been an incredibly difficult year. And then we go through and we look at what we prayed for, and we tick off all of the answers to prayer. And there are hundreds of them, absolutely hundreds of them, just incredible, miraculous things that the Lord has been doing throughout this last 15 or so months. I, I, I won't give you specifics, okay, because I don't want to glorify the war. But I just want to say that, that God is so incredibly faithful. Um, we, my co-pastor, one of my co-pastors is on the front lines. Um, he, he's right in the thick of the battle and picking up wounded soldiers, he and his team. So many Christians are involved with doing that kind of thing here. He was wounded, but the Lord has just answered hundreds and hundreds of our prayers, very, very specific prayers. And, and you know, I, I would just like to leave, just like to say one thing, that the people of Ukraine are incredibly thankful to the American people for your support, for the whole issue of justice, and uh, helping Ukraine to defend their country. Uh, we, we hate war. We hate violence as Christians, but we also believe that we have to defend what is right. So I, I want to thank you all for your prayers, and please continue to keep Ukraine and uh, Ukrainian Christians in your prayers because we desperately cherish your prayers for, for this nation. Thank you very much. All right. 
it's it's so good to hear that prayers are being answered constantly uh, especially in such a time of strife and uh, of course we will continue to stand by ukraine during this war we'll do what we can from over here I'm, I'm glad to know that you know prayer still works people oh absolutely and god is the he is the just judge we have to always remember that, right. that when we pray when we pray of things that uh, and, and even if we have to pray repeatedly that god is the just judge and he will bring justice um, in every situation either in this life or in the next no deed right. will go unpunished that should be punished right all right we've had wonderful testimonies mate. there are some incredible testimonies of people here absolutely incredible wow. yeah I, you know i could i could spend an hour talking about it but right maybe next time yeah okay yeah uh, Steve, thank you so much for your time today. Stick around. We're going to do a little something later. Uh, y'all, if you like this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend or an enemy. Uh, share it with a cousin. Uh, most of us got cousins. Uh, consider supporting us on Patreon to get access to the Whole Church Discord channel. You can talk to us, ask us questions. Uh, you can get the same bonus episodes and content from all of the AMP shows on Apple Podcasts. Uh, check out our other AMP shows. They're, they're good shows. I'm actually starting another one on there soon called Hockey Night in Carolina. Uh, there are more thoughtful Christian shows on there as well. A lot of good guys over there. We hope you enjoyed it. Come back next week when we'll be interviewing uh, Russ Petrus and Elizabeth Donnelly of Catholic Women to Preach. After that, we'll have another roundtable discussion about the differences between the church and a cult. Uh, next, we'll have some of our fellow hosts from Systematic Geekology join us to discuss what it's been like working with Christians of different beliefs together on that show. And at the end of season one, Francis Chan will be joining us. I'm sure that he has simply missed our previous invites and he will actually see the next one and then agree to come on. Uh, but until then, thank you for your support and I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the whole church podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, you can always sponsor our show at patreon.com forward slash the whole church podcast.